human beings are storytellers by nature. The left hemisphere of the brain has dedicated circuits, regions like Broca and Wernicke's regions that are set up along with other circuits in the ventral medial uh, to produce narratives, sequences. And we use stories to uh, make sense of our lives in the world around us. If you've ever watched, for example, a documentary without the voiceover on, you pretty much rarely have a clue what's going on or what the message is. You might see some random images, maybe a fox, and then there's a rabbit, and then there's a crocodile. I don't know what documentary I'm talking about. <laughs> making this up. But anyway, you get the idea. You have no clue what's going on. And... You rely on the voiceover, the narrator, generally an authoritative voice, to give you a sense of what the information these images are conveying. And so we create internal stories in the form of inner autobiographies, life stories, and uh, commentaries that we rely on to make sense of experience. The stories we tell, the narratives that we sustain about our lives and about the people we interact with, creates our sense of the world, the laws that the world operates under. It creates the sense of our goals that we're trying to achieve. It creates the sense of our purpose in the world. And even perhaps most importantly, our very sense of self and identity is completely constructed through language that we repeat in our minds. So without the interpreter, we would be thoroughly overwhelmed by impressions and experiences, and we would feel very vulnerable and very uh, disempowered. According to Gazaniga, who was probably the first neuroscientist who located the regions of this interpreter, um, the interpreter, that uh, storytelling capability, is what gives us a sense of cohesion, a sense of authorship of our action. Without that interpreter, without that story we tell, we would take actions, but we wouldn't be, even have a sense that the actions had a sense or a motivation to them. So we act, and then we tell a story about why we acted, and we create motivations and rationalizations and justifications. So reality and identity, self, and our sense of the world around us is deeply influenced by these stories that we tell, especially the ones that we repeat in our minds about ourselves, the people we love, and the world around us. Now what's most important from a Buddhist perspective and from a psychological perspective is to remember that our stories are arbitrary. And as simple a, um, uh, and as straightforward an idea as that is, we tend to forget that all the time. And we tend to believe our thoughts. And we tend to uh, believe that our thoughts are natural um, results of the world around us, not arbitrary uh, stories that have been created due to a realm of influences, 
these influences make our stories not only inherently arbitrary and subjective, but very often they cause stories that create a lot of suffering and needless pain for us, just as often as our stories can be empowering and can create a sense of understanding cause and effect, which is what the Buddha's main concern that our thinking be able to do for us, to determine which actions are causing us pain and which actions are causing us long-term happiness and other people happiness. We tend to add on an array of stories and beliefs that cause us a lot of disempowerment, a lot of suffering, a lot of frustration. So what are the sources of these influences that very often <coughs> cause double-bind stories that leave us no choice but to feel like we're failing or that we are overmatched by life. Well, I would suggest three, at the very least, and this is a simple list. I could have gone on, but for the sake of having a talk that can fit into a half an hour, I have to pretty much cut it off. So the three big ones I would suggest are family systems, the culture that we live in, and the emotional settings that we've uh, inherited uh, over the course of our lives. So one, family systems start the process. We are informed from a very young age by our caretakers who we are. We're told, you're the one who's smart, lazy, creative, intelligent, uh, beautiful, uh, slow. Uh, you're the one who's good at math or bad at English. My father and my mother gave me very contrary stories of who I was, and that created a very challenging path of creating a sense of coherent self. My dad very often informed me that I was not masculine enough in his <coughs> worldview, whereas my mom was very quick to inform me that I was creative, and my dad though also really liked it when I played piano. He told me I was uh, creative as well. So I wound up with conflicting stories that I bounced back in my head to create a sense of identity. Families also inculcate beliefs that can leave us with no possible way of finding happiness or ease in the world. For example, some families inform us that self-reliance is much more important than asking for help and being willing to seek assistance when we need it. Some families inform us that confidence is a sign of strength, whereas anxiety is a form of weakness, and so we should conceal our anxiety and show our confidence. And that, of course, can make us at war with ourselves, and when we have natural feelings of anger or anxiety, depending upon the family system's beliefs, we can believe that there's something wrong with ourselves rather than simply understanding that we're experiencing entirely natural emotional states. Now, capitalism and educational systems produced by capitalism actually continue this process of deeply embedding us into pre-created stories that we inhabit. In capitalism, we're informed by a variety of channels and media that uh, hard work invariably pays off. 
That is a lie, by the way. <laughs> there are a lot of people that are born into poverty or into difficult family systems who work very hard and due to inherent biases in our culture, find it very difficult to thrive in a capitalist system. But more so is James Baldwin, one of my great heroes, was never uh, tired of saying capitalism rewarded simplistic black and white thinking. He said that if you want to win over people in American capitalism, say something that's really dumb, but say it simply and with great deal of sincerity and people will vote for you and believe you. Which explains the entire shape that we're in today. So in our culture, we are told that we should think in simple black and white terms about ourselves and other people. We should view ourselves as either uh, successful or unsuccessful. Other people are either uh, rescuers and heroes or failures or uh, let us down. We are not, in our culture, rewarded in the narratives that we watch on television and read in books and see in comic books and in magazines. We're not encouraged to think that people are complex and that we are complex with both good and challenging characteristics and that there, uh, we are, depending upon the context we are in, we behave in different ways. So we are trained to think and create simple stories. And we're trained to believe that confidence and self-reliance very often are far more preferable than people who want to connect and ask for help and uh, experience any negative emotional states. And finally, there's what's known as mood congruity and negativity bias. Mood congruity is the fact that the human mind is not set up to argue with itself or to play devil's advocate or do checks and balances. In fact, the human brain is set up to do the exact opposite. Whatever emotional state we're in, the brain is set up to create a story that justifies or explains why we feel that way. Let me read to you a great um, explanation of it uh, by Stephen Johnson, who's a very, very well-known neuroscience writer. He writes, the brain is not designed to play devil's advocate. When you're filled with happiness, memory systems don't remind you of your upcoming tax filing. You're more likely to think of the vacation that's around the corner. This is why depression can be so devastating. Happy memories just don't pop into the minds of those who are depressed. In other words, large role of thinking is to create a distraction or what Winnicott called a false self, to protect us from our feelings. Thoughts generally follow our feelings, but they create a lot of verbiage that makes us so fascinated in our thinking that we won't feel our emotional states in our body. Winnicott argued that very young in life we begin to feel, fear our own bodies and our own emotions as they express themselves in our bodies. So we create thoughts to explain why we're feeling the way we do. Now, if we experience as many good moods as bad moods, uh, maybe this would be something that uh, wound up good in the checks and balances. But it turns out that science also shows us that the human brain 
has what's known as negativity bias. Unfortunately, we are five times more likely to deeply neurally embed negative experiences than positive ones, because guess what? It seems to be more valuable for us in terms of survival to remember all the times people let us down and all the times people that we count on didn't show up for us than to remember the times when people do show up for us and do act in ways that are positive. So we actually, as we grow older, tend to wind up in brains that tend to very often skew towards negative evaluations of the people in our lives, including ourselves. So, let's talk a little bit about the Buddhist uh, approach to this. The Buddha referred to this ability of the mind to create stories to make sense of the world as sankaras. And sankaras are very often translated as fabrications, which is a terrible world word, but that's not surprising because virtually all of the translations that Buddhist uh, translators came up with were uniformly terrible. So why not keep that trend going? Um, so our stories and our mental creations are called fabrications or sankaras. The Buddha taught that sankaras in and of themselves are not inherently good or bad. The problem is when we attach or cling to our stories and we don't know how to put them down, that we wind up suffering. So actually, as Tanisaro Bhikkhu, one of my teachers, explains, uh, the entire path itself, even our spiritual practice, is a fabrication. It's a story that we use to make sense of the world. So, stories are not inherently wrong. The Four Noble Truths are a fabrication. They're a story that we try to try to make sense of our experience. The famous teaching by the Buddha, the Buddha is asked to explain how we should relate to the wisdom and the beliefs that we have, which are known as fabrications and ditti. And the Buddha uses the analogy of a raft. Uh, he tells the people around them, suppose you're walking on this path, and of course the path he's referring to is your spiritual practice, or your life, your day-to-day -day life, and you reach a body of water, and you can't cross the water, so he says you might build a raft. And this was obviously in the time when people were, could do those things. If I reached a body of water, I could see all the wood and twigs and leaves necessary, and I wouldn't have a clue how to build a raft, so I would be, that would be it for me. But uh, in this teaching, the Buddha says, so you build a raft. And he says, then you use that raft to cross this body of water, and you get to the other side. And here's where the teaching really reaches epicenter. The Buddha says, then what do you do? Do you drag that raft around with you everywhere? Or do you put it down and continue on the, the path on land? And the practitioners listening quite rightly say, you put down the raft. And the Buddha says in his archaic way, thus so, I don't know why they always translate him saying thus so, so, but he says, thus so, you do that with your thoughts and with all of your understanding of the path. You use it when it's useful and you drop it when it's no longer useful. So the key is 
that we know when thoughts one are useful, and even thoughts that are useful, we know how to put them down. The Buddha says that there are certain kinds of thoughts that tend to, more often than not, create a lot of suffering. There's four thoughts about uh, obsession with things that are pleasurable. Uh, for me, that's my iced coffee in the morning. I went throughout all of Europe trying to explain in different countries how to make an iced coffee. I really clung to that idea that every culture should have an iced coffee. Uh, the second is our beliefs in our habits and our rituals and our routines. So again, that would be my iced coffee. Uh, that's also my, you know, my favorite restaurant that I go to. The routines also can be your, the things of your spiritual practice. Sometimes we can come into a different spiritual center and they do things a little differently and we can go, holy crap, what's going on here? That teacher has tattoos all over him. That's not right. I actually had a Buddhist visiting from Burma who told me that. Uh, and, but the biggest two, the Buddha said, that cause us suffering by, we cling to them. As we cling, he said, to stories of our views about the way the world should be and other people should be. And we cling to stories about ourselves. That's Vidyupadana and Atavadupadana. Atavadupadana. So, um, we have to be really wary of those two kinds of stories. Because those are the ones that, if you care about neuroscience, they activate the ventral medial lobe of your brain, which is implicated in default mode thinking, which is the most difficult thinking to stop. It tends to create the most obsession and it tends to also activate your amygdala, which means it causes the most suffering and stress. So if you want to create misery for yourself, think about what's going to happen to you in the future. That should keep you busy for a long time. <coughs> or, B, you can ask yourself, what do other people think about me? And then settle in for a, a long bath of misery. So, uh, Given our reliance on stories, it would be, you know, of course, on retreats, and in a lot of the Buddhist teachings, there's all these talks about how in meditation, we're trying to get to a place where we clear out fabrications. And the Buddha, of course, does say that in uh, Nibbana, there's a, play, a time we reach where we're indifferent to the stories that the mind creates. But that's easier said than done, and most of us will, in our lives rely on our stories that we tell in our mind, the thinking that we use and rely upon to make sense of the experiences and why do people act the way they do and why is the world this way and how the hell do we have Trump as president and stuff like that. So we will rely on thinking, but then the key is um, how do we think in a way that is useful and how do we create stories that will not cause us too much suffering? So, I'm going to give you a few Buddhist insights on that. Um, the first uh, is that uh, in all Buddhist insight, there is the recognition as a core insight that all experience is impermanent. Everything will pass. 
And two, nothing we experience is entirely unique. Even if we're going through a situation that feels very unique, the emotions and the feelings are actually not. Because there's only so many human feelings and emotions, it's impossible for you or I to come up with a unique one. So the bulk of any experience is really very universal and very transient in the sense that the feelings and the emotions will change. So when we construct a story about any experience in life, one of the key practices is to, one, separate the problems from ourselves by, one, acknowledging that whatever we're experiencing it is not wholly personal or unique about me. So, for example, there's a massive difference from saying, I have depression or I am depressed on the one hand, from the statement, like 30 million other Americans at this time, I'm presently experiencing a transient state of depression, which will pass. Now, both facts, or both statements refer to the exact same experience, but if you use the, the latter, you're already living in a completely different way of relating to your own experience and the amount of stress you will experience and the amount of suffering you'll experience due to the depression will change significantly. If you say, I'm depressed, you are already beginning to live in your experience as if it's different, that it's somehow separate from others and it will disempower you from reaching out to others <coughs> and sharing your experience. If you acknowledge that there's been other times in your life where you weren't depressed, in fact, there are even very often times during the day where you don't experience depression or anxiety or anger or a sense of futility, then already you're acknowledging that your experience is subject to change and there's far less feeling of being trapped, being alone, feeling that you desperately need to take action you can still take action, but you won't come from a reactive, desperate place. You'll come from taking action from a place that's far more calm, and you'll reach out and you'll acknowledge that whatever you're experiencing is not yours alone. Now, of course, human beings in our culture are trained to believe in individuality. Capitalism fetishizes the sense of the individual from the moment we're young, we are told that we have specific skills and we're tabulated and given grades and we are given SAT scores and we're categorized and separated and then we're sent to uh, very well-meaning and talented therapists who give us a diagnosis and then you're walking around with a personality disorder or something else. And so we all inherit a way of thinking that imbues experience with the sense of this is mine and I'm stuck with this and I'm in this alone and other people can't possibly understand what I'm experiencing. On the other hand, when we focus on the fact that much of our experience is always transpersonal, especially the feelings and the emotions, the details might be a little bit different, but the emotions and the feelings are always, always understandable by other people. Acknowledge 
transpersonal quality of experience and then acknowledge the temporal quality of experience. That separates us from our so-called problems or challenges. The second key is to avoid simplistic stories and embrace, in fact, complexity. Work against your own mood congruity. If you naturally feel inclined to think depressed thoughts, that's probably because you are in a negative emotional state. And so we voice or we develop the routine or practice of thinking the contrary thought. Now, here's a clue about this. It's very, very difficult to start this practice when you're miserable. Because when you're miserable, you've got five times the neural weight justifying your miserable thoughts. You want to start when you're happy, thinking something that reminds you that you won't always be happy. When you actually do this, you might not believe me, but if you practice contradicting your mood with your thoughts, you won't only do that when you're happy, you'll also start to do that when you're more depressed or anxious. I know because I've been practicing this for over 15 years and it's now become a regular natural product that when I start to feel myself thinking dark thoughts, I can tell that I'm in a dark mood and I start to feel the inclination to counterbalance those thoughts with a different list of reasons I should be grateful. So, for example, when something good happens, you get your book proposal accepted, or somebody compliments you, or uh, you're in a new relationship, instead of thinking, oh, this is great, I'm really on a winning streak, everything will be good, I've just met someone, you think, and I will still die. <laughs> and I will still have to pay my taxes. Now, I know that might sound like a killjoy thing, but you'll still feel good, You'll just wind up the practice of counterbalancing the thoughts which don't play devil's advocate. They tend to go along with the mood. You'll start to train your neural circuitry to do the opposite. And as Donald Hebbs, the great neuroscientist, tells us, we need to start neurally wiring thoughts so that we get in the practice of doing them. He used the analogy, or I'm not sure it was Hebbs or another neuroscientist, used the analogy that the brain is like a mountain with snow, and people tend to use the, um, when people ski down a mountain, I don't know what I'm talking about with mountains and skiing, but when they ski down, they leave a trail, and the next person who starts skiing will more likely take a trail than plow an entirely <laughs> new path. So if you want to train the mind to contradict the mood you're in, you need to start practicing putting trails into the neural uh, wiring of your brain so that you'll not fall into the existing trails which are just justify whatever mood you're in. Finally, the Buddha did focus on recollections that he said were skillful in constructing any stories. Before constructing or while constructing stories, he argued for sila nusati, which is reflect on all the skills you've developed and all of the examples in your life where you've made significant changes and overcome obstacles. 
Silanusati is a great daily practice. Kaganusati is essentially the same as a gratitude list. It's embedding uh, reflections on things we should be grateful for, and again, that contradicts or works against negativity bias. And then Sanganusati is probably the most important, reflecting on all the people that are available in your life that you can talk to about any problem. Other people that are safe are essential because it's very difficult to create um, good, useful stories all the time. Uh, generally, the stories we construct about ourselves are much harsher than the stories our friends would tell us. We're far quicker at condemning ourselves and our minds as being uh, not succeeding, failing, not living up to expectations. We're very quick to go along with feelings of guilt about the way we relate to family members or other people. And sure, if we have good friends, what the Buddha, as the Buddha defined, people who are willing to tell us when we make mistakes, but people who also are, will jump to our defense and will contradict the stories that we're telling. This means that we do need to reveal the stories that we're telling in our minds. We can't keep them hidden because hidden stories cannot be challenged and cannot be changed. So it's very important to get into the practice of revealing to other people the stories we've been telling about our lives and how we've been making sense of our experience. Because, believe me, in my work doing Buddhist counseling over the last 12 years with literally now hundreds upon hundreds of practitioners, i found invariably that when people don't express aloud their stories, they tend to construct really harsh negative uh, narratives that make them live in a very confined, smaller place where they feel that they're not living up to some imaginary uh, expectations that nobody can live up to. Find the most comfortable seated position for you and try not to be a meditator or a practitioner, just be someone who's finding uh, comfort and ease and uh, posture that is um, good for checking in with your internal experience. And generally that's a posture that doesn't require too much effort to sustain. So a, a posture that has essentially some balance to it definitely tends to reduce the amount of effort you have to keep in sustaining the posture. So if you feel that your head is nicely in line with your shoulders and not drooping over your chest, um, that's a good start. So you can either close your eyes or look at the ground in front of you. The reason is, is that we spend much of our lives, of course, uh, focused on two elements of experience at the expense of the rest. We tend to focus on events going on in the world around us, 
and we tend to focus on our thoughts, the narrative that we tell ourselves about what's going on. And so, for this period of practice, we're going to rebalance awareness, at least for the first part of the meditation, towards connecting with our internal experience. Now that means first body sensations, It can also mean feelings and moods, emotional states. So let's start out first with the body. And one of the chief ways we can connect with the body on a sustained basis is by using the breath as an anchor. An anchor is a sensation that occurs pretty much on its own that keeps us present and keeps the mind from being pulled off entirely into thoughts or memories or plans or fears. So, obviously, you could use the breath as the anchor for your meditation. One way to do that is to find the area in the body where you're most aware of your body breathing in, your body breathing out. That might be this sensation of air at the tip of the nose, or the chest expanding and contracting, or the belly or the shoulders, or pretty much any other area, there's a subtle shift of sensations that occur during inhalation and exhalation. And if you want to use the breath, one of the most cherished approaches is to count inhalations and exhalations. So, while you're breathing in, think one. While you're breathing out, two. The following inhalation, think three, four with the out breath, and then when you reach five on the next in breath, you start counting back down, four on the end. So we're counting from one to five and back down. You don't have to push away thoughts or any other experience, you simply need to keep in mind whether you're breathing in or out, or the number that you're on. Now, many people prefer to use other anchors than the breath, and that's entirely fine. One anchor is to simply observe the contact sensations that your body makes with the surrounding environment. So the feeling of clothes on your body, the contact with the cushion you're sitting on, the lights flickering 
behind closed eyelids, and the sounds that continually reach your ears. Try not to go out in search of sounds, just allow the ambient sounds to arrive. In other words, orient yourself entirely to the sensations of the present moment as expressed through contact with the world around you. A couple of other objects that you could use as an anchor. You could repeat a very simple phrase associated with cultivating peace, tranquility, such as, may I live with ease, may I know, true peace and serenity. And you might want to then express the same intention for all beings. So, may all beings live with ease and know true peace and serenity. And finally, another anchor is what the Buddha called a nimitta, a very simple image that's sustained in awareness. So, for example, visualizing a color, a shape, a candle perhaps flickering, or a place you know very well that activates feelings of ease, security, comfort. If you find your mind is especially jumpy, filled with Lots of thoughts. You can work with two anchors, so knowing whether you're breathing in or out, also visualizing a safe space, or with each in-breath, say one metaphrase, may I be peaceful, and then with the out-breath, may I live with ease. What will happen is eventually a thought will pull away your attention and your instinct might be to become frustrated or impatient or add some kind of comment, but actually that's entirely natural and that's the way the mind is set default to chase after thoughts about the past or the future when we are sitting in a contemplative state. So to train the mind, we first practice kindness with ourselves and patience. And we refrain from any self-judgment, from any criticism, from any sense or story that we're doing anything wrong.
So this one, let's bring in what the Buddha called the second and third foundations of awareness, which would be feelings and moods. So you have awareness now somewhat of your body. You know whether it's breathing in or out and the posture that you're in. Feelings are the very foundation of emotions, the physical sensations in your stomach, your throat, your shoulders, your chest, the internal feelings of comfort and discomfort that let you know if you're okay with what's going on at this moment in time, or whether you're concerned or very comfortable or you have no opinion. So when we're uncomfortable, the shoulders tighten, the stomach tightens, the chest feels contracted. When we're in a good place with what's happening in any given moment, the shoulders relax, the stomach relaxes, the body feels very comfortable. So the feeling of any given moment is internal physical sensation. Now moods are comprised of the quality of attention you have, whether your mind is settled or jumpy, tired and foggy or clear and alert. We can also discern moods by the facial expressions that we have that are largely not under our control. Feeling of sadness in the eyes or feeling of joy being expressed in the corner of the mouth. So as we move on at this point for a little while, just notice how the different feelings and moods shift. What feelings of comfort or discomfort in the body, what moods by the quality of attention in your mind and the expressions on the face.
So at this point, hopefully you're aware of the quality of your breath, whether it's relaxed and peaceful or shallow. You, the out-breath feels incomplete or fully relaxed. You have a sense of the feelings that are arising and passing in the body, the moods shifting in the mind. At this point, the last part of the meditation, you can observe as thoughts, memories, plans, all the mental content that we create, as having human minds, we create a lot of content. And at this point, when any content appears, see how it affects the breath, How does it affect feelings? How does it affect moods? So, for example, if a thought comes up about the events of today, conversation, or a setback, or some good news, whatever arises, just say hello to it, don't push it away, and just see how does this visiting thought affect my breath? Does it make my breath slower, more anxious, deeper or shallower? What does it do to my shoulders, throat, stomach, chest? Does it make my stomach muscles tighten, my shoulders contract? And finally, how does it change mood? Does it make my mind feel more spacious or claustrophobic? Is there a subtle shift of expression around the corner of my eyes or my mouth? Does the mind feel suddenly more jumpy or more relaxed? And when you've observed how each thought affects your breath, your feelings, your mood, and you return to that thought, you thank it, you just allow it to be there. And if it won't go away, then return your awareness to your anchor.
So at this point we're going to begin the transition from the meditation. And to do that, first take a moment to reflect on the virtue of your practice. Not only does it have significant neural benefits in terms of long-term memory, reduction of fight-flight activations in the midbrain, increased gray matter in attention, sustaining areas. It also has physiological benefits, definitely associated with the reduction of cortisol, which is the stress hormone which is reduced when you meditate. And that's the benefit of not only averting arterial sclerosis, but also other aging and uh, immune deficiencies. So, but the best thing about your practice, additionally, is that it doesn't come at any cost to any other being. Your practice doesn't harm anyone else. It doesn't exploit anyone else. It doesn't use up the world's resources. No being suffers when you meditate. So your practice is blameless. When we now, in a moment, we'll open our eyes. First look at the ground in front of you. Take in the light and the color. And... Try not to first look around the room. If you do, what will happen is the sights in the room will, due to the detail and the variety, will push away the connection you've made with body, feelings, and moods. So you want to maintain a balanced awareness where you're aware of what's going on in the world around you. You're aware of your thoughts, but you're also aware of your body, your feelings, and your emotions. And when you do that, you not only live a much more well-rounded life, but you are in connection with the deepest resources of your brain, and you make much smarter choices. So when you're ready, you can open your eyes.